Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible to Titus, the third chapter. And we're going to be looking at the last two paragraphs of that rather small epistle from Paul to a man named Titus who was serving the Lord, actually leading a church on the island of Crete. Titus chapter 3. Well, I do want to express my uh, appreciation to uh, Pastor Brian for inviting me to uh, be here this morning. It's a great honor. Uh, I think I had one other opportunity to be here with some special day about three years ago to preach. We've been attending, of course, and uh, know what's happening here at uh, East Brandywine. But I, I, I am grateful that uh, Brian asked me to be here when he was going to be uh, away for the Thanksgiving holiday. And boy, hasn't the Lord assembled quite a great pastoral team here? I mean, Pastor Brian, Pastor Joe, Pastor Matt, and Pastor John. I think as a congregation, you are richly blessed and you're in good care. A pastor is not a showman. A pastor is not a programmer. A pastor is a shepherd. And I think you got some good ones here. So we praise the Lord for that. Have you found Titus? It's a little book. (laughs) All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you do love us. You, You are the good shepherd. We are, as Hebrews writes, under shepherds. But we seek to follow in the path and train of the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Might might the pastors here, the four pastors here, might they be men who understand the shepherding role and minister and serve this congregation. And we thank you that you've given us that. Lord, we pray that you'd open our minds to what you have to say, what I have to say, not really important. What you have to say is everlasting. Engrave that on our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when uh, Pastor Matt read from Galatians chapter 5, it was, a, it was a very strong line drawn. The works of the flesh are these. And he names various behaviors that go on under the heading of the works of the flesh. All of those things are behaviors. Then he makes a switch. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he names them. And they're not behaviors, they're more inner attitudes. So there's, there's a great break between those behaviors and how a person who knows Christ is going to live. But wouldn't you say that in Galatians chapter 5, there is definitely a line of demarcation between those who don't know Christ and those who do? We're going to see the same thing here in Titus chapter 3. I want to start at verse 9. Paul writes to Titus, He's serving on the island of Crete. Evidently, the island of Crete was not the easiest place to serve, but I don't know that there is any easy place. But it was a place in chapter 1 where Paul says, you know, there's a bunch of lazy, gluttonous people that live in your territory. You say, that's what what they say about this place. And And then Paul says, and that's true. How'd you like to be a resident of Crete? When Paul writes that, they're lazy, they're gluttonous, and that's true. Now, Paul writes to Titus, 
ministering in that environment, but avoid verse 9, chapter 3, foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once. Chapter 1 tells us there were divisive souls that lived there. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Reminds me of what uh, one of my uncles, my uncle George, who was a pastor, but also a chaplain in the United States Army during World War II, he used to say, yeah, Jesus said, if, if somebody, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, if somebody slaps you in the face, then, then turn the other cheek to him and let him slap you on the other side of the face. But see, as a military man, he had this idea to add to it. And once he gets done with both, then let him have it after that. <laughs> Such a man, he says, is warped and sinful, divisive, over things that don't really add up to much. Then verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you. Uh, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people, and I'd like to underline and focus our attention on that word, our. Our people. See, there's, a, there, there, there's some kind of offense between the general population, and our people. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, so, some of you are carrying Bibles that say just ours. You probably then are holding a King James version of the Bible. But almost all of the other commonly used by evangelical translations of the Bible add the word people. Some of you have people in italics, our people. And that's, that's really the meaning of it. However, I do like the way the King James says it because it's a little bit more faithful to the original language in Greek, which Paul used. He just says our. Ours are supposed to be different. When I was a preteen and an early teen, there was a rule in my house that I had to be home before the street lights went on in the city. Now, if these had been on photo cells, it wouldn't have been too bad, but they were timed. And whoever was in charge of that particular duty, they would change it, you know, as the sun goes down later or earlier. And it was, a lot of times it was all messed up. And the streetlights would come on and was still, the sun hadn't even gone down. But the rule was, I had to be home before the streetlights came on. It was a big joke with my friends. Hey, Harry, streetlights are on. Better get home, Harry. Streetlights are on. Oh, it made me feel so embarrassed. So my argument was, well, everybody else can stay out after the streetlights are on. Why can't I? I thought that was a pretty logically airtight argument. But my parents didn't. I remember more than once when I used that argument, my mother would say, everybody else is not my son. You are my son, and you'll be home before the streetlights come on. 
God is saying here, I think through Paul to Titus, to us, I'm not that concerned with what everybody else is doing. I'm concerned with what my people are doing, our people are doing. They're not my children. You are. And I want you to be different. Well, you say, wait, you might think, well, wait a minute. We're all God's children, aren't we? Not really. Not really. How does John begin his book? Yeah, in the beginning was the word and all, but then it goes down to speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, speaking of Israel. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, to become the sons or the children of God. Only the people who receive him. Have, have you received it? Have you come to the place in your life where you have confessed to God, I'm a sinner, I have, I have no right to approach God. I ought to be damned and sent away from his presence forever. But I'm going to put all my weight on Jesus. That's receiving him. I've talked to people at times and used this illustration. So an insurance agent came to your house and he told you about this great policy. And you agreed. Man, it's a great policy. And then suddenly... Your house goes down. It burns down. Or maybe a flood. And you call the agent up and said, yeah, I told you this was a great policy. He said, yes, you did. But you never signed up. I can't help you. And there might be people in this room who say, yeah, Jesus, he's good. It's good stuff. I be- you know, I believe this stuff. And look, I'm here on a Sunday morning. What do you- of course, I-, I think this is important. But have you actually signed up and said straight away to God, I'm a sinner. I want this gift. Come into my life. The Lord says, now for those who have done that, ours, I expect there to be a little difference in the way you behave. First Peter chapter 2. If, if you want to turn there, please do. First Peter chapter 2. At verse 1, Peter writes, and of course he's writing, you go back to the first chapter, to God's elect. He's writing to people who are ours. First Peter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Let newborn babies, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's got some behaviors here that should be part and parcel of the lifestyle of the ones who know that the Lord is good and they have this salvation. And then in verse 9 he says, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are, and I'm reading from the NIV, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now you are ours. You are our people. And what Titus is going to say, or Paul is going to say to Titus in chapter 3, is very applicable to us. You, you, know what, you know what this means? We can't just join in with that flock of geese in their, in their great formation and then just jump in line and fly south with them and north with them, whatever else people in this world are doing. We have to be sure that we're dedicated to do what God wants us to do. It's true. To do what the one who bled and died on Calvary wants us to do. The one who rose from the dead and says, in me you can have new life. Well, there's two kind of behaviors that Paul tells Titus then to share with these uh, Cretans. Could I call them that? And I, I want to highlight them. There's many others in, in the book, in the letter. But the first one is in verse 10. We ought not to be divisive people. You see verse 10? Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time and after that have nothing to do with him. Do any of you have the word in verse 10, heretic? No? No King Jamesers here? All right, the original, King, not the original, but the early King James Bible transliterated this word heretic. The word that Paul literally used is the word heretic. Heretic. What do you think of when you think of a heretic? Oh, that's, oh, that's somebody that they tied to a pole in medieval Europe and set them on fire. That was a heretic. Or that was those people in Spain or in France in the 15, 1600s who got swept up in the, uh, in the Inquisition and were thrown in jail and were beaten up and were... But that's not the kind of heretic Paul is talking about here. This word simply means divisive. Someone who is factious. In the NIV it says a divisive man. In the New American Standard it says a factious man. In the English Standard Version ESV it says, I think many of you have this, a man who stirs up divisions. That's what the original word means. In fact, the very root of the word means choose. It's like he's a person who always likes to choose up sides. And she likes to see if her side could win. Factious. Sedating. Sectarian. Psalm 133.1 in contrast says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Isn't that a refreshing statement? We, we are not expected to just go along with the drift of the crowd. But we are expected within the local assembly to pull together for unity. Especially 
in the local church. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm not talking about this mushy, gushy, based on nothing, ecumenicalism, you know, uh, linking up and saying, well, we're all one, you know, with those who don't even believe the scriptures are true or that Jesus was God the Son. No, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about other brothers and sisters who are ours. And particularly in the local assembly where God has led you to worship and serve. Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn to it, where God leads Paul to say something about this unity. And he makes a statement as though unity is something that we have to work at. It, it doesn't just fall naturally like an apple of a tree. Ephesians 4 verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. On the basis of the fact of who we are, because we are part of this, our people, we have one body, one spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over us all. And because that's true, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And to have a divisive person, one of these herikton, heretics, in the body, it's very dangerous. It's as dangerous as one lit match could be in a barn full of straw. Burn the whole thing down. It's as dangerous as inviting one fox into the chicken coop just for one night. It can really make a mess of things. Proverbs 16, 19. You know, it says there are seven things that the Lord hates. And number seven is he that soweth discord among brethren. Chapter 3 of Titus, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and they're useless. This, this kind of gets in just arguing all the time about some of the nitty-gritty fine points of biblical understanding, but it's not going anywhere. We're agreed on the majors. We're agreed on what's important but we don't want to get hung up in squabbles about some of the secondary or tertiary things. Paul says to Titus, these are unprofitable. Look at chapter 1 of Titus, verse 10. What kinds of things is he talking to about? Titus 1.10, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. It says they, they, they pay attention, not you, but they pay attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. You need to be careful. 
Does this mean we can't have differences of opinion on some things? I, I heard a fella at a conference one time say, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. Do we agree on everything? No. But we can discuss some of these secondary things. And then when we're finished discussing, we still know that we're our people. And we're part of each other. And we're going to pull together. Not be divisive. Do I dare step out on a limb? Off the pirate ship onto the plank? And suggest some things that could be contentious in a local church? Style of music. Details about the end times. I mean, real sticky points. Not just that there will be a millennial kingdom and there will be a rapture, but real sticky points. The way we've always done it. The financial commitments that the church makes and the financial commitments that the church doesn't make. And who was the smarty pants who decided which one we would do? How the pastor's family conducts itself. The clothing that people should wear on the platform. Ever hear any stuff about that? Or how about this one? Because I know you've been through it. I mean, I'm, I'm here. Predestination and free will. All right? Can be some differences of opinion on those things. But we still know we're our people. We belong together. Someone has said, we are brothers, but we're not necessarily identical twins. And so we can have some differences, but not to the point of drawing a line in the sand and saying, oh, that's them, and this is us. We are our people. And it really gets testy when, when sometimes in these little discussions we begin to make evaluations about the spiritual motives and spiritual level of attainment of others. I think, I think my rule of thumb would be 1 Corinthians 4, 6. You know, 1 Corinthians 4 has, and chapter 1 too, some say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas or Peter. And Paul goes to say, what, did, did, Paul, did Paul die for you? Was Peter baptized for you? What? And in chapter 4 of that letter, he says, be careful not to go beyond what is written. So we take what is written, we're satisfied with that, and to speculate much beyond that, that can be dangerous. Back when Coach Landry was in charge of the Dallas Cowboys, a lot of the guys were second-guessing some, um, some of the decisions of the coaches. And they started expressing this to the press. Tom Landry didn't like that very much, so he made a rule. Any member who was quoted in the press 
as saying something against their coaches would be fined $1,000. That doesn't sound so much today because these guys were making a, a, a lot. But in 1948-84, I mean, it was a pretty good fine, and it stopped all the griping that went on in the press. Not that they couldn't have differences of opinion in the locker room, but it wasn't going out of there. Because those cowboys, you may not like them, by the way, but they were our team working together. So we strive to do what? We strive to be peacemakers. We strive to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In fact, if you would turn to James chapter 3 and see this one verse as he concludes a section on wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 18. I realize the NIV sets this up a little bit differently than some of the other scripture translations. 3.18 of James, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. That's what God wants us to do. Sow in peace. Work for unity. Even though there might be some little differences of opinion. Why? Because you're ours. This is our people. And we're to be different. Distinct from the way the world works. There's an old African proverb that says, if people, if enough people work together, they can carry an elephant into a house, and if the kettle is big enough, they can cook it. Oh, what God wants to do. If enough people, ours, are working, pulling together in unity, not divisive, but peacemakers. Have you been up on what's been happening in uh, upstate western New York the last couple days? No? Some areas around Buffalo have had more than six feet of snow. In Buffalo itself, I think it was a mere five feet. But did you ever reach out your hand when a snowflake is coming down? And it hits your hand, and what does it do? It melts. Not much to it. Just one. Oh, but look what those things can do when they stick together. And look what God wants to do with his people and, and this church. As you pull together, not divisive, but striving for the unity of the spirit. Well, there's one other. And, and as, as I said, there's a number of behaviors through this book that Paul highlights as behaviors not to be engaged in and those to, to be engaged in. The second one is laziness. Hmm. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Ours, our people, must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Unproductive lives for what? Providing for their own daily necessities. You know what Paul says to the Thessalonians? He tells them, if a man will not work, he should not eat. Now, that's not saying if a man cannot work, if he's disabled, if a man cannot work because age will not permit him to work anymore. He cannot, no, but he's saying if a man will not, he should not eat. And so here it's kind of the same idea. We should not be lazy, 
but leave productive lives. So this office manager, he had a difficulty. They had let go of a certain employee, and now somebody was asking for a reference for that employee for a new job. And the manager who let that guy go thought to himself, how am I going to do this? I don't want to jeopardize his possibility of getting a new job, but the guy was so lazy. Yet I wanted to tell the truth. So for a whole night, the manager just thought about this and thought about this. And this is what he wrote in his reference for that former employee. You will be lucky if you can get him to work for you. Isn't that that one of the common complaints that you hear today? Oh, we can't get good help anymore. Good help, we can't get any help anymore. Seems to be. I was talking with a woman up at Shady Maple. This was like two weeks ago. And she was refilling. You know Shady Maple? Some of you do. She was refilling the buffet trays. You know, she had a whole bunch of stuff. And she looked like she was about to fall over. And I said to her, boy, you've got your hands full tonight, don't you? She said... We can't find any good help. Nobody wants to work. And then she added this. And the young ones, she was old, and the young ones, we can't get them off the cell phone. That's not ours. That's not ours. We lead productive lives, not lazy the, the, the word for productive, it quite literally, is the word for fruit. We lead fruitful lives. We stay busy, not lazy, not loafers. Way back in the 70s, the mayor of Hondo, Texas. Have you ever heard of Hondo, Texas? You probably had to live there if you to have heard of it. You do, you've heard of it. You, you lived in that area? Wow. Well, I'm going to tell you something about that town. When this happened, the town was about 5,000 people. Now it's about 9,000 people. The mayor and his administration applied for a grant from the federal government to help them build a community center. The agency in the federal government responsible for that wrote back to them after they'd run the data and told them they don't have enough unemployed people to get this grant. So the mayor came up with an idea. He publicized, he advertised that they needed unemployed people to move to Hondo. They had responses from people from 15 different U.S. states and Canada. And all of them wanted to know what would be the benefits, you know, what could they get if they were to do this. And the mayor says, I swatted at a bee and I hit the whole hive. People were more than willing to move to Hondo, Texas to be lazy. Not ours. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, even in New Jersey, where I originally come from, even in Pennsylvania, where I've lived for 21 years, there's some lazy people. There really are. Not you. Not ours. Who know Christ. This message was posted on the bulletin board of the University of Washington. Trying to find yourself? Just get busy. You'll show up. What is this, the Puritan work ethic? 
That's usually lambasted the old Puritan work ethic. Now call it what you want. But a Christian has a responsibility to be productive, to be useful, to be busy, and even pulling his or her own weight and providing for the necessities of life. So Paul draws these uh, contrasts. Not divisive, but working toward unity. Peacemakers. And then he has another one. Not lazy, not loafers, but productive, fruitful. Dr. Lewis Evans tells this story about an English businessman that he knew. And he was on assignment for his company to do some work in an African country. In that African country, which at that time was a colonial country, there was a rather large regiment of British soldiers. So the businessman thought he would make contact with the commander of the regiment and have dinner with him, which he did. He shows up, the, the military commander had his office and his living quarters in what was basically a Quonset hut. And the businessman walks in and he sees this delicately, delicately formal English table set for dinner. And the, and the military commander has on uh, his finest formal dinner jacket, everything just to the nines. And the businessman was like, wow, here you are in this, you know. Here was the response that the military commander gave. As an officer of the British Empire, I am determined to live by the code of Great Britain, regardless of how any of the neighbors live. As a member of God's family, we, right, are determined to live by the code of the Old and the New Testament, no matter how any of our neighbors, neighbors behave. Jesus put it this way. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. But everybody else is doing it. Another one my mom used to give to me when we lived in the New York area, it was, if everybody else jumped off the George Washington Bridge, are you going to jump too? I never found that to be a, a, a very tight logical reason, but everybody else is doing it does not cut it with our Lord. Because everybody else is not his child. But you are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're very thankful that we have a Savior who forgives. And Lord, we know that we, we fall short many times. We mess up. But we thank you that you allow us to get back up and keep moving. And you forgive us. We pray, Lord, that we might be people who display and show the characteristics of what a Christian life is. Help us as a church to be all that we are supposed to be according to your word. Lord, if there are any in our room who have never personally responded to Christ, they, 
They think it's a good stuff, but they've never really signed on. And come directly to you and said, count me in. I want Christ in my life. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would move in those hearts. And we thank you for hearing us, and we thank you for loving us. And we thank you for keeping us. In Jesus' name, amen.